Well, good morning. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here. And before I get started, I wanted you to meet Frank. Frank is one of our volunteers here at Parkview. He's also a firefighter. So he was on call last night. No fires, fortunately. But just really appreciate, uh, there's so many people that serve around here. Maybe you don't know who they are, but John is out of town this weekend. A lot of our college students you see helping us in worship are on a little break here. So um, appreciate you stepping up, helping us out, Frank. Thanks for what you do, too. So give it up for Frank. Both what he does here and uh, the firefighting thing is pretty cool too. So also appreciate Mike and uh, Rachel who did the announcements earlier. It was about five years, four years ago. They uh, kind of pursued Lori and I. We need to meet. We need to meet. And so when we got our schedules together, their first question was, how can we serve at Parkview? Like we just want to serve somewhere. So it was a beautiful picture. Uh, Mike is the band director at Southeast Junior High this year, but next year he'll be the band director at City High. So any families that have City High kids, he's going to be your band guy. So it's pretty cool. So I um, want to uh, <laughs> invite you into uh, a journey today. So we are in a series called Life Matters, and we're just taking different kind of a topical four-week series on what is God, what does the Bible say about different things? So today is going to be about marriage, okay? So um, I want to quickly grab anybody that's single, not married, and all this. Like this is, marriage matters, and you're going to see that today uh, to all of us. Uh, and it definitely matters to God, and I think you'll, you'll see why today. And I think this is an especially important topic in our season, in our culture these days, because I think there are so many misconceptions about what God thinks or what the Bible says about things like marriage or gender or sex or identity or relationships. And so <laughs> when I shared this idea with the teaching team a couple weeks ago, I got a bunch of blank stares like, you're, you're not really going to do that, are you? And so against that, I'm still moving forward. And so usually we'll take one passage of the Bible and just kind of go into depth with it. Today, you can consider this a tour de marriage. Like we're gonna, like if somebody visited Iowa City and you were trying to let them know what the city was about, like you might take them downtown or to the Ped Mall or to the university or to Coral Ridge or out to Woodpecker Trail and uh, to the reservoir. And so, I mean, there might be different things or you might eat at Mosley's or Jimmy Jack's or at IRP or, and so in this tour, you may, as we're going along, you may say, hey, why didn't you take us here? Or we might be driving by the fossil gorge. You go, oh, I'd like to get out and dig around in the gorge. Like we're not going to have time for that. But really what, what inspired me to do this was uh, I, every, every time I do premarital counseling with a couple, we just start with the Bible and we just start reading, like, what is God's plan for marriage? And uh, a couple weeks ago, the, the woman who was in this meeting had never read the Bible before. And it was just really cool to see uh, her just get to, get for the first time, to just read about what God says about the super important topic. And again, you're going to see like this deeply involves every one of us here. Again, it's not a time for single people to check out. This is a, a huge deal uh, to God. And so it's such a beautiful picture. So let me pray. And then we're going to go on this journey together. Okay, so let's pray. We'll jump into it. So Father, I every week um, just desperately need your help whenever I'm up here, whenever I'm opening your word and teaching your people. Um, I, I especially feel dependent on you this morning. Would you please speak through me? Some of these things we're talking about this morning, even just mentioning marriage can can immediately just raise all sorts of emotions and hurts and um, guilt or shame or all kinds of things. So Jesus, I pray what comes through loud and clear this morning is your love uh, for everyone in this room. 
and that what would come through loud and clear is the amazing relationship that you're inviting every one of us into. And so uh, speak through your word today, speak through me, and um, would you just again, you be the one that gets exalted and your love come through loud and clear today. In your great name we pray, amen. So um, if you want to follow along your Bible, totally can. You have an outline that you got when you came in. This would be an especially important morning to do that. Just kind of follow along. And I'm going to start us in, in the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. And let me just, I'll just read it. So it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the ground. Guys, Genesis 1 is an amazing chapter. It just erupts with the glory and the power of God. You know, in a day where there were maybe civilizations that worshiped many gods, it is very, very clear without a doubt that there is, the Bible points us to one God who merely speaks, and then there are heavens and earth and all of creation. And so you read through Genesis 1, and you just see the power and the glory of this God. And then you get to the bottom at the end of the chapter. It's almost like, okay, God would say, like, okay, you like the galaxies? You like the Grand Canyon? Let me show you something truly awesome. And when you get to the end of chapter 1, you see that he creates uh, what we just read. Uh, he creates people, image bearers, male and female. And, and that is the way the whole chapter is designed. It's like God is saying, this is, you know, yeah, the other stuff is pretty cool. I am super proud of this. And I'm not just saying that because I'm one of us, like, Patner, aren't we cool? Aren't we awesome? It's not like that. But that's literally how the text lays out, that out of all of God's creation, male and female image bearers. And even that, like, needs a little unpacking. It means that you've been created uniquely compared to the rest of creation to know God and to be able to uh, absorb and reflect his character and his qualities to this creation. In fact, you see that we are placed in a super high position of this creation to, to rule over it, to have dominion over it. And so um, if you read chapter 1 uh, and, and you really understand what God is trying to say, um, you are in a good spot. Like the, the one phrase I forgot to mention already was when it said that God created them, male and female. What's the first thing he, it says that he did? He, he blessed them. Like they didn't do anything. They just showed up and he blessed them. So um, what, I, what I want us to capture first of all is that you are not an accident. You were created by a loving, very powerful God, very wise God. You were created uniquely to know him. Uh, you have dignity and honor as an image bearer of God. God wants you to know him, and God has given you a significant role to play on this planet. Like, you are the peak of his creation, and so is the person next to you, and so is anybody you run into in this next week or every cross paths with throughout your life. Like, every human being has been given this dignity and this honor by God, all right? And so, and the, the whole plan behind everything I'm going to say moving forward comes from that place, from a God who loves to bless us, from a God who wants to honor us, okay? And so if I could pause for a second, this whole topic is being played out in our culture in a whole different worldview, in a whole different frame of reference. 
Like I would say in many places in our culture today, God has been removed. So there is no creator. There's no one who spoke into you an identity or a value. And so what you're left with in our culture today, if you don't have God in the picture, is that you are, you are forced then to define yourself. Like you look within your own heart, within your own thinking, uh, within whatever you're feeling, and, and you look for an identity. You look for who you are. You look for satisfaction, and you look for a purpose. And so that's the alternative. And in his love for us, Jesus would, would just um, strongly urge us not to live that way. You can look it up later, but Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 7, verse 21, and a few verses afterwards, Jesus describes what our hearts are like. Like we are broken people. And so if we're looking into a broken place to, to identify ourselves and find our value and worth and meaning, like we're in big trouble. Like I, just in my own experience, like there's some days I wake up and man, everything's great. Pop in, everything's good, feeling good about myself. There's days, I, it's a struggle. Some days you wake up and you're tired or you're discouraged. And I mean, if just looking into my own, just that glimpse of my heart, there would, I, you're, you're talking about a roller coaster ride for me and my identity and my satisfaction. Just from day to day, things could shift. And, and what Jesus would lovingly say is like, you know, look at, look at the biblical story that you have been created by an amazing God. You have value, dignity, and worth, and his desire is to bless you. His desire is for your life to flourish, all right? So, so just to make a quick comment about the day we live in and maybe what's at the root of some of the things you're hearing discussed today, just, just understand like the, the worldview you're invited into by, by this loving creator God, okay? So Genesis 2, we're going to turn a page and... Um, in Genesis 2, you see the creation story told again, but this time it's from a different vantage point. This time it's talking about the creation of the first man and the first woman. And in that context, if you jump to verse 18, it says that then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Okay, so when I read this passage uh, with people I'm just getting to know and we're doing some premarital counseling together, there are a few phrases that uh, they'll be out there on the table and I might hold back a little bit. Like, how's this going to go? Like, how's this one going to fly? Am I going to be people angry or walking out the door? I mean, this one, helper fit. We'll get, we'll get to that in a little bit, okay? So just, it's good. We'll be there, okay? So, but let me just draw your attention. The first thing I love about this is that God saw something that wasn't good and if we had read all of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, everything God has done up to this point was good. Like heavens and earth, it was good. Day and night, it was good. Like everything God did was good, 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 good. But right here in 2.18, er, step on the brakes, something's not good. And God notices what is not good is that man is alone. And so... Um, what we're going to be introduced to now is um, kind of one of the motives, one of the drives behind God creating marriage. But can I, can I just say uh, that this statement that it's not good for any of us to be alone is not the only answer for that is not always going to be marriage. Like you can read throughout the rest of the Bible and there are so many passages that would invite you away from living isolated and alone instead living in community with other followers of Jesus, other believers in God. And so, but in this particular passage, it's still true that what was not good was that Adam was alone. And so God saw a need and then God met Adam's need. Okay, and so maybe you've been around a guy before, maybe he really wants to date 
and he's in a school where there's no girls his age, or he's in a community or in a job where he just can't find him. Sometimes guys will say, well, there just aren't any girls there to date. It's like, Adam is the only guy that could actually literally say that, because there weren't. You know, he was, up until now, his job was to name uh, the animals. God was creating different things from the ground, and he'd bring them to Adam, and Adam would name them. But as he was naming all of creatures, he noticed there was no one like him. There was no um, companion for him, and God saw that and said, that's not good. So he said, I will make him a helper. And what's so cool about that is that we're just already seeing the character of God that maybe even before we know what our need is, God sees our need, and God can meet our need. Like even when literally there were no women there for Adam, God provided for him. Like what a beautiful picture of the God who invites us to trust him, all right? So um, now let's get to this helper fit for him. Like what's that all about? Like the word helper, does, it doesn't mean God said, oh, let's make a maid for him, or let's make a servant for him. Like the word helper is an incredibly strong word that's used for God himself. Like what he's saying is I'm gonna make, and the, and the word suitable helper, the word suitable or fit for him uh, is a unique Hebrew word. And really from what we can tell, it means like a perfect complement. Like God is bringing in a strong person, a strong presence in this man's life that will complement him, that together this will be a strong team, all right? And so fully an image bearer, male and female, brought together. Um, and if you see the context here, Adam is serving God. Like he is, he is naming animals. He's showing dominion over God's creation. And so one aspect of marriage is there for companionship, but another aspect of marriage is that you are now a team serving God together. And so again, this isn't just some servant. This is somebody who's coming alongside your teammate to help you be even stronger and more effective at serving God together. So I love that. And then I love to see um, Adam's response. Like when God brought Eve to him, I have the privilege of when I'm doing weddings, I'm usually standing right by the groom when the bride is coming in the doors and just to kind of look over at this guy's face. Like it's, it's priceless. Like I, so many times I, if I could have a camera mounted just so people can see. Like and so sometimes the guy will just start bawling. Like what am I doing here? Like she's so beautiful. I'm such a moron. Why is she marrying me? Like whatever that thought is or just a gasp or just a big smile. Like um, this is Adam's response. We see it in verse 23 uh, where God has created Eve, brought her to Adam and he says, uh, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That first line is written in poetry. And so it may have even been sung. Like the first words recorded, spoken by a human was a response of like gratitude and awe and celebration. Like, God, look what you have done for me. Like at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman. Like even in that sentence, there's a beautiful thing going on here. Like Adam immediately recognizes, hey, here is another image bearer. Like finally, here's another one like me, the pinnacle of God's creation created uniquely to know God. But he doesn't just call her like another man. He doesn't give her his name. Like there's a distinction here too, that she is distinct and unique. He calls her woman. And so he, he celebrates both. He celebrates that she also is an image bearer, but he also celebrates that, but she's different but I don't care. Like, I love that difference. And there's a celebration and a joy 
uh, behind us. And so, again, the biblical plan for marriage often gets such a bum rap. You know, like it's, you get the engagement ring and you get the wedding ring and then comes the suffering, you know, all those kind of things. Or there was a couple pictures I saw this week, like the universal symbol of marriage. So some guy like groveling on his knees and face with his hand raised with a bunch of money, handing it to a demanding woman. Like that's supposedly the universal picture of marriage. Or another one I saw where there's a man and woman at an altar and the sign over the top said, game over. Like that is exactly not like what God is designing. That is exactly not the, the response of Adam to this amazing gift that God has given him. And so then there's this, this kind of final statement in this passage, verse 24, where it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. This is the only relationship in the Bible that's called a one flesh relationship. It, it, it denotes covenant and promise and permanence. Like nothing is going to shake this. And again, what a beautiful gift for companionship. What a beautiful gift uh, for teamwork that you know this is someone you can count on. This is someone who will be there. This is not if I feel like it or if you measure up, we'll see if this works out. This is like I am committed to you. This is a covenant. Uh, it's a reflection really of God's love for us. God's, God's committed covenant love for us. And this is where sexuality is introduced as well. Like, like it wasn't like God created them male and female and they started having sex, husband and wife, and he went, oh no, look what they figured out how to do, crud. Like no, this is a beautiful part of his design. Like he, he celebrates sex within marriage. That's how God designed this. And so, um, and again, I think that, that sexual passion and that joy is, is, again, all of this is gonna point us to a greater love and a greater celebration of the one who pursues us and loves us. So um, and the Bible's not afraid. It doesn't blush when it talks about sex between a man and a woman. The Song of Solomon, we're not going to have time to go through that today. There's a whole book that just celebrates uh, romance and sex within marriage, which you see, you see that very clearly is God's plan for marriage right here in chapter 2. All right, we got to keep it moving here. Chapter three, you turn it over, and this is like one of the one of the saddest transitions you'll ever read, because you've just come from Genesis one and two. It's amazing celebration of a creative God who is powerful. He established us with this identity uh, as image bearers, male and female. He established this amazing relationship, of husband and wife. But in chapter three, you see the enemy attack. Humanity, and it is so interesting that the enemy doesn't attack until there's a marriage. I think the enemy sees the danger on his side of what could happen if there were godly marriages, if there were marriages that were living the way that God had designed. And so, and so he attacked them. He basically lied to them and got them to, deny, to doubt that God is good. Um, uh, he, you know, God's going to hold out on you or, or that you, you really need to obey God. It's not a big deal if you don't obey God. He was getting them to believe things like that. And so, so basically he tempted them and they sinned. They rebelled against God and the results were cataclysmic. It just cut the first man and woman off from their relationship with God and it completely fractured their relationship with each other. You read words like shame, that now when they're in the presence of God, there was shame. And now when they were with each other, they were covering themselves up. They were ashamed uh, that they were naked. And so now you're introducing shame and distance. And in fact, as chapter three describes uh, the male-female relationship, now instead of compatibility and teamwork, now you see competition 
in comparison. And so uh, just a devastating, like beautiful setup, and now just a, the greatest tragedy that has ever hit our planet in the rebellion against God. And so, but even in the midst of that very sad story, there's a glimmer of hope where there's a prediction of uh, the seed, a, a, a um, descendant from the woman would end up crushing the enemy's head. I believe that's an illusion, a, a glimpse to look ahead to Jesus who would come and, and redeem what has just been broken by sin. All right, so, and again, you're probably saying, hey, let's stay in the, let's go look at the fossil gorge now. Let's go, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we gotta get onto the mall here. So that's where we're going, but just kind of in our survey of marriage, that's where we are um, right now. And I wanna move us ahead now to Matthew 19. So we're gonna jump to the gospels and we've passed over, like I said, Song of Solomon it was a whole book written about romance and marriage. Could have gone there. Could have gone to some places in the Minor Prophets where God compared when his people rebelled against him. He compared it to um, adultery that he was cheated on. And so you're beginning to see a rounded out picture of marriage isn't just one little theme in the Bible. Like there's a thread throughout the Bible that, that celebrates marriage, both male, female on this planet, but you're beginning to get a glimpse more and more that God's talking about something much bigger than just, you know, particular marriages in this room. All right, so now we get to Matthew 19, and here uh, what's happening is that Jesus is out in public, and he's teaching, and a group of people called the Pharisees that did not like Jesus, they were religious leaders, constantly trying to trap him to say something wrong. They ask him a big question. They say, what do you think about divorce? When is divorce okay? And I think the reason why this was such a kind of a tricky, dangerous question for Jesus to answer is that they were in the very proximity of a palace or a fortress where King Herod lived. And King Herod was the guy that had John the Baptist beheaded. And one thing that got John the Baptist in trouble was that he spoke very publicly against Herod's illegitimate marriage with his brother's wife, all right? So they're thinking, hey, if we get Jesus to say something wrong, maybe Herod's going to come, arrest Jesus, and he's out of our way. So there's a, there's a hidden agenda behind them asking this very loaded question. And so, but Jesus answers it every time. He answers them just brilliantly. And so verse 4, chapter 19 um, Oh, let me also say this too, like even the context Jesus was speaking into, uh, some people still had a very high view of marriage and would say, no, there are very few exceptions where, where divorce would be okay. But then there were also some very, very, very loose and very wrong uh, translations of, of Bible and, uh, and marriage and divorce. Like some were even like if she, if the wife cooks a bad meal, you can divorce her. Or if someone more attractive catches your eye, you can divorce her. So there was a clear undercutting of the beauty of marriage that God had designed. And even in Jesus' culture, just a clear undercutting of, of women in general that went totally against Genesis 1 and 2. So when Jesus spoke into that culture and into this question, this is what he said. He said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. And so a couple of things I want you to notice. One is uh, Jesus looked clear back to the teaching in Genesis 1 and 2 and said, that's the truth. Sometimes you'll hear today like, well, the biblical view of sex or marriage or um, male and female gender, like it's kind of, it's only in Genesis or it's outdated or Jesus never really addressed it. 
I mean, here's a very clear passage where Jesus, like, that's the truth. Like, that's how God set things up, and I still endorse that. Like, that is still what is true. And again, I just love in there that male and female image bearers, like he's trying to protect uh, the dignity of both, but he's also trying to protect uh, the sanctity of marriage and how valuable, how, how precious marriage is. In fact, one thing that is super helpful here, like for any married couple this morning, did you notice that Jesus inserted in here what therefore God has joined together, let man not separate like, what a beautiful picture. I try, to, I try to pray this, or at least say this in a wedding that I do, but I want that couple to know that when they walk out the doors that day, they've got some fans around them, like all the family and friends are there to encourage them and pray for them and that sort of thing. But when they leave, they don't leave just the two of them. They leave with God in the center of that marriage. Like, God is committed to grow that marriage. That Maybe there's some hope in that this morning, because when I'm talking to marriages, uh, I'm sure there's a spectrum here. I'm sure that some would say, man, we're doing great. We're just cruising along and it's awesome. There might be some, it's like it was super hard to even come to church today and sit next to him or her. And I just want to give hope this morning that, that in this marriage that you started when before God you made your vows to each other, that God is right in the midst of this. And so the progress you've seen that's been God at work in your life, you know, and so, and the battles you're facing now, that same God is still there to work with you, and interesting statistic um, that I read a couple years ago that just keeps blowing me away, that it's something like 70%, maybe a little higher, of couples that would describe their marriage as being, like, we're about, we're about done, like, this is about, maybe we should get divorced, but you stay there and keep it, keep it going for five years. Five years later, over 70% of those marriages are still together. I just, it can be hard. They're, they're, and again, spectrum in this room, I realize that. But just, just the hope is that, that you're not on your own, that God is there, and that God is building this marriage that can help and rescue any marriage. So... So we see that in, uh, in Matthew 19, and those are, the, I think, the two main ones I wanted you to catch there. So now there's two more passages. Hang with me, and then we're just going to throw out a couple practical tips for married and single this morning. So now we're going to jump to Ephesians 5, and this is probably the longest passage in the New Testament on marriage. And so the book of Ephesians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a city called Ephesus. It has six chapters. The first three chapters, he just pours on them like all that Jesus has done for them. The phrase in Christ is all over the book of Ephesians. So he's trying to open their eyes like, guys, would you just see like how amazing your life is because you are in Christ, like you are loved in Christ, like you have power because you are in Christ. And so the first three chapters is who you are in Christ. The next three chapters, four, five, and six are about now how do you live? Like now that you've been given these resources, how do you live? with other Christians, and now in particular in marriage. How do you live as husband and wife? And so Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2 says, uh, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So how do you like verse 1, be imitators of God? How did that one go for you guys this week? Like imitate God, right? So, but, but the next phrase is so key, as beloved children. Like as God is pouring his love into you, people, now this is how I would love to see you walk and live with the people in your life, people in your church, and also now the people in your home. 
And so you jump down to verse, I'm going to start with the husbands first, okay? If you jump down to verse 25, when Paul's talking about marriage, he says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, when I read that in these premarital counseling times, and I look across at the guy, and I say, did you just read verse 25? Did you just hear what that said? Like, that should make your knees buckle. Like, okay, your assignment is, the kind of husband you're supposed to be, is to love her just like Jesus loved the church. Like, boom, there there you go. And so that's why it's so key to go back to verse 1 and 2. Like, so you are a beloved child. So husbands out there, you don't crank this out on your own. Especially when you read some of those things in verse 26 and verse 27 about sanctifying her, cleansing her, washing her. I read those things and go, I, that's not my turf. Like, that's Jesus' turf you're talking about. Like, the cleansing, the sanctification, the, the, and Jesus would say exactly. Like, that's his role to, to, to save us, to grow us. But, but husband, you love your wife with the love that I'm pouring into your life, and then you watch. You watch him do that work. Like, so, so the call is to love as we have been loved, husbands, not to crank out something there's no way you could ever produce, right? So, so you love her sacrificially, um, and, then, and then God works through that. God works and moves through that. So now we circle back in verse 21. It says, uh, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's kind of the last verse in this section that's talking to Christians in general. It says, hey, you guys, when you're hanging out with each other, submit to each other out of your reverence for Jesus. And then verse 22 begins to talk about marriage, and it begins to talk about the role of the wife, okay? Now, this is another one of those passages when I'm reading it with somebody for the first time. I maybe put it out there and just kind of hold back. Okay, what's going to come out of this? Because the word submit appears there. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For as the husband is the head of the wife, is the head of the wife, as, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so, uh, again, um, I, I cannot think of a couple that maybe at first there's some recoiling, like, wait, what does this mean? What does this look like? But once we've explained it, once we've looked in the context, it, it actually, yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds good. Um, because really, I mean, there's st- I'm not saying there's total removal of tension, but I'd say there's very little tension when you realize the one that you're called to follow or submit to or respect uh, is one who's laying his life down for you. Like this is a servant leader. This isn't a man that's pointing that verse and saying, submit to me, wife. You know, like it's like, no, dude, you are broken. Like that is not what this means. Let's jump to 25 quickly, dude, and say you better be laying down your life. Like this is not something you demand from her. This is something you, you earn from her as you are laying your life down for her. Like what woman wouldn't respect that, wouldn't, wouldn't appreciate that, and wouldn't want to follow a man who is living for her, laying down his life for her, putting her ahead of himself. And it's really cool to just notice that in, again, maybe not as we read this through in English, but in the Greek uh, language here, the verb choices and tenses here, is that this is something the woman chooses to do. This isn't a general um, 
edict that women submit to all men or that, um, the, the, that this was just imposed on this wife. She, um, the, the, the grammatical phrase, there is a middle voice action here where she is choosing to come under his uh, leadership, that she sees this quality, these characters about him, not that he's going to be flawless, just like she isn't either. She won't always be worthy of his love. Um, he won't always be the perfect leader, but yet she has chosen this man because of his, how he demonstrates that he is a servant leader. And so um, just a, a beautiful picture where really both uh, what the husband is called to do, what the wife is called to do, are both reflecting what Jesus has done for us. That Jesus has laid down his life. He loved us, not just when we deserved it. So guys, you're not, you don't get a break if she's, being mean to you for a week or she's having a bad week so you can pull back a little bit. No, no, no. Jesus died for us and we were sinners. And so men, we sacrifice and lay down our lives for our wives. That's our calling. And, and so uh, wives the same way. There may not be every day that he's as flawless and is perfect uh, to follow his plan. But in general, when you see a man and a woman living this out, it turns heads. Like when you're around a couple and you just see this guy, man, and he loves his wife, and he's not just saying stuff to her, but he's serving her, and he really revere, you know, shows respect to her, and you see him doing things for her, and that's really cool. And then when you see uh, a, a wife just really, again, honoring, respecting, you see that couple together, you just go, well, that is, that is really cool. And you see that, though, and that couple's not going to say, yeah, well, we kind of worked hard at this, and we pulled this off. They'd say, no, 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 we got this from Jesus. Like, this is what Jesus is doing in us. And you'd probably quickly say, we've got so far to go. But, but this is a beautiful picture. In fact, you jump down to verse 31. And Paul's kind of cap, just putting a capstone on this whole teaching. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So Paul's doing the same thing that Jesus did. He's going all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 and saying, this is the same deal we've been talking about throughout the Bible. But then look at verse 32. It's kind of like our eyes are open. Like, why is marriage such a big deal? It's right here. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So it's kind of like when God was, before there was marriage, um, Thomas on our teaching team gave, gave this thought the other day. Before there was marriage, God was sitting there thinking, how can I, in a really practical way, just show this world what my love for them is like? And he says, I'm going to design marriage, like between a man and a woman, where both of them, you know, are going to, are going to play roles in this marriage that are ultimately going to point to Jesus, that are going to ultimately point to my love for uh, the, this human race that I've created, that have sinned against me, but now I'm going to redeem them with my love. And so um, we won't read it now. We're out of time. But in Revelation 19, uh, we see kind of at the very end of the Bible now that Jesus is called uh, the groom, that he is coming for his bride. And the bride is the church. It's those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And we're told about a wedding feast and, and this great celebration uh, of Jesus the bride coming uh, to begin this eternal relationship with his bride, the church, all right? And so what you see is throughout the Bible then, in Genesis 1, God's beautiful creation, heaven and earth was capstone celebrated by creation of man and woman and then creation of marriage. Like all of that was set up for the first 
wedding. Like what a beautiful, glorious event that was. But you go all the way through the scripture and you see in the book of Revelation then there's going to be a much, much greater wedding even than that one with the new heavens and the new earth. And now Jesus has the perfect room coming to show his love to his church that didn't deserve his love, but yet he gave his love for us. That's the gospel message put on full display. And that feast and that wedding will be amazing. And so I'm not trying to disrespect like what your wedding day may have been like or your reception or your honeymoon. Can I just say though, those all pale in comparison to the wedding day that, if, that it waits every one of us who say, I do, to Jesus. Like that he is offering, he has proposed to every one of us to be involved uh, in this amazing love story with this relationship uh, with him. And so uh, that is why marriage matters. That's why marriage is such a big deal that you see throughout the Bible is that clearly it's there to, um, again, it's not good. Man's alone and God provides so much for people through marriage. And actually, if you do the study, like a whole society and culture is blessed. Children are blessed. A culture is blessed when people are living uh, by the biblical pattern of sex and marriage. Like secular statistics from all disciplines will show that just the human flourishing that erupts. But, but way even beyond those awesome things that can happen, God is using marriage to point us to the ultimate love that we can all experience through Jesus, all right? So, so why marriage matters, that's it. That's my quick summary there. And tomorrow we're gonna send out an email with some practical resources, things for you to read. And, and I had to hop over a few things today. Um, but let me just get to a few practical applications, both if we're married this morning or if we're single this morning. Just, just a few things. Uh, let's talk first uh, to married couples. Okay, here's God's plan and design. Now, how do we how do we just live this the way God is calling us to? Let me just throw out a couple things. First, I would say uh, the words God first. Like keep God first in your marriage. Like we've, we've heard this. Like in order to play the roles you're called to play in a marriage, you need Jesus to do this. Uh, husbands, we've already talked about that. Like how can you love a wife as Christ loved the church without you, first of all, just being poured into by the love of Jesus, all right? So let me just throw out a practical way. I heard a statistic a couple years ago, and it, it's just super powerful to me that um, I'm going to talk about praying in marriage, praying with your spouse. Um, the latest statistic I saw says that about 8% of Christian couples pray together. 8% pray together. Um, but on the other side of that, 99% of couples that pray together stay together. Like the divorce rate with couples who don't you got it, right? So 8% and 99% right there. I mean, you look at that and you go, okay, uh, I know there's many factors in a marriage, but like, how about that? Like, what if we prayed together? And when I've talked to very good couples, like amazing people that I know, this is a struggle. And, and so there's a variety of reasons from the, the guy side of things. A lot of times the guy just doesn't, like, it, I don't know what to say. Like, I'm going to sound kind of stupid if I, if I lead out and pray and my words won't sound that good. Or, or we can get so busy or we're so tired by the end of the night we don't pray together. Um, here's another one. Like, I, I haven't been living like a really good husband. And so now all of a sudden I'm supposed to bring God into this. Like, I feel so hypocritical. Um, can I just maybe speaking to the men here, the husbands here, like, um, I think uh, for your wife, and I've heard this from women too, like to see you honestly seeking God, to hear your voice, regardless 
maybe to a point even of what you're saying, but just to hear that you're depending on God and that you need help, like that helps her trust you and your leadership. You're not just trying to wing it or you don't think you got this so you don't need God. Like <laughs> you're just showing a ton of humility that is actually very attractive uh, to your wife. And so, I, you know, who would be the one that's trying to get Christian couples not to pray? That sounds more like the enemy to me than Jesus, right? So, so all these doubts being planted in your head, I'm not going to sound that good. That, that's not coming from Jesus. He would just say, just, just talk. And so that's one of the attachments coming to you tomorrow. It's just a practical, like, we don't pray. How do we get started? Just some very simple, and just encourage each other in that and, and how you pray together. So God first, uh, and, and just maybe a place to start just praying together. Here's the second one. Um, serve together is so powerful. I see so many families that do a good job of that. Sometimes people get a little um, isolated in their marriage or they get uh, introverted and a little indulgent. And a lot of times you see that happen and that couple just kind of fades away. You were designed to be part of a bigger family, not just your family. And so, so make sure, and Lori and I, I would say that's one we didn't necessarily anticipate getting married, but that's been an awesome one for us to do marriage together, to team together and serve God together. So that's been a cool one. And the third one is to pursue each other. Keep pursuing each other, just like God has pursued us in relationship with us. So a couple just practical things that have helped uh, to have a rhythm like a date night or a time during the week where it's just the two of you. You're not letting the schedule come in or the kids crowd in, or, but you're, just, you're designated a time where you're spending together. Here's a practical one too. Um, what if you made a list of the things you really appreciate about your spouse, like their strengths? Um, it's maybe how they bless you or just when you just watch them. You know, maybe there's 10, 15, 20 things because I can tell you where your mind will naturally go will be to the things that they're not doing for you or that they're not. So how, what a great discipline to just keep studying your wife, your husband, and just find things that he's good at and that she's good at. And you just, you look at that list regularly and then look for times to just share those in a variety of ways. Like maybe it wouldn't be super creative if you pulled it out every day and just read it, wrote, right? But you're thinking of different ways to just affirm and um, compliment uh, and value your spouse. Um, yeah, yeah, one more. Uh, one more here is, um, is to ask each other every so often, like are there, just ask for some coaching on how you can love her better or love him better. Not in the heat of a moment and not when things are tense, right? But, um, but maybe some questions like, what should I keep doing? What should I stop doing? And what should I start doing? And just, and just listen and be able to communicate those kind of things. Again, not every date night, maybe not every month, but, but you know, a couple times a year, you're just really seeking input uh, into your marriage. Okay, so let me, let me talk to singles here for a little bit. Again, thanks for your patience. Like you so easily could have checked out like, oh, this isn't for me today. But I hope what you're hearing is that this totally is for you because uh, um, I, I was single until I was 30. So my card carrying single days are a little faded now. I don't know if I ser- shared that just so I had a little bit of credibility on this topic right here. But, um, but God, there's, a, there's some beautiful takeaways for you from this um, as well. Even if uh, and, and single is a wide range in the room this morning. It can mean very different things. Um, but what I hope you're hearing above all is even if from now to the rest of your life, let's say you do not, you, for whatever reason, you do not get married, okay? This topic is still 
super important to you for a couple of reasons. One is um, even, you know, it can be so easy to look around and it just seems like everybody else is married, everybody else is in a relationship, everybody else is dating except me. And, um, and not to diminish any marriage that's going on in this room, but I think what, one thing for us to focus on would be there is a greater marriage, there is a greater love, there is a greater future uh, that I am invited into right now and I can fully live and fully enjoy that right now, to be loved by the creator God in a way that he uses marriage as an analogy, that he seeks us, that he pursues us, that there's a passion for us, that he enjoys us, and he wants that to be permanent, and he wants us to live that way for all of eternity. And there's a day where we will literally celebrate that relationship with, you know, the coming of the the, the, the groom, the, the wedding feast, and then all of eternity in heaven. Like, if that's where our focus is during our single days, that frees us from, you know, discouraged and uh, comparing and grumbling, oh, why am I not? And just look at what you have been invited into. Like, such a, a, a powerful analogy that even the great marriages you see around you that you don't get to be a part of, Man, those are just painting a picture of something far greater that you can experience right now. And so even if, let's say, you start living that way now, and then there is an opportunity for you to get married, you will be in a far healthier place that you're not going to be looking for some guy or some girl to just totally meet your needs. And I just got to be married like everybody else because your needs will be just (laughs) so filled by a deeper understanding of God and his love for you. In fact, I think, I I love Lori's right over there. I love being married to her. Like I married way over my head. But there's something about those single days where I didn't have a wife that you have to, you lean into God for things that it's a lot easier just to talk to somebody with or hug somebody or have somebody pray with you. But but there are, there are moments in your single days where you, it's God, right? And so you just lean on him and, and depend on him for things. So you live that way in your single days. And then if God does provide a marriage for you, you are in such a healthy place than not to step into that, that marriage, like demanding and draining so much from your spouse. But you have learned so much about how God satisfies you that you're then able to be a better husband or wife because you are doing just what Ephesians 5 said, as beloved children, right? That's how we love our wives as Christ loved the church. So, so that's my encouragement to you. And even in this, like we live in a day where the biblical pattern would be that even in your single days, that means you, you don't have sex. <laughs> you say that today, and I'm saying that at the very end of the sermon, it's like, what? You're dropping that one on us now? Like, it's almost like that's impossible. Like, no food, no water, no sex. Like, you die, right, if all those things happen. Um, uh, single folks here, the way you show this world uh, that there is a God and his love, David said, your love is better than life. Like, one way you put that unclear on display and celebrate this God uh, uh, who uses marriage to demonstrate the gospel is that when you live a pure life, when you choose not to have sex because you see God's plan as sex is within marriage, uh, you're, you're not married, but you are sure pointing to the big marriage we're talking about today. You're pointing to the God who loves us so intensely, who satisfies me so deeply that I will choose to obey him and I will see flourishing in my life when I do it his way and my way, that turns heads in our culture today. 
And they, they hear that's your lifestyle. They hear that's your decision. That, that, where did you get that? <laughs> so you may get called all kinds of things. You may, whatever. But what you are doing is you're living out the plan of Genesis 1, Genesis 2. This God who made you in his image, loves you, wants to bless you. Um, and you're, you're just putting that on display uh, for this world to see. But I would say, like just when God looked at Adam and said, it's not good that you're alone, uh, that's the same thing for a single person too. And God would say, okay, I invite you into a relationship with me, but I also invite you into a relationship with a community, with other believers that you can share your life with, do life with. And so do not try to make this through on your own, okay? So I want to say one other thing to the church, like to all of us. What are some tips for us? So Jesus walked in this planet and he was full of grace and truth. So I think as a church, we can't be ashamed to talk about what God has taught. Like we have to. Like if this is for human flourishing, if this is God's wiser than us and he knows better than us, we gotta teach his ways, okay? So I, as, as long as I'm pastor here, we're gonna pr- keep preaching God's word and if marriage and sex and gender and all that's in there, we gotta keep teaching it. But on the other hand, Jesus was also full of, tr- of grace. And here's the good thing for us to remember. There's not a person in this room that has lived a flawless, perfectly holy sexual life no one. And so that should blow us away, that in spite of us being in some way uh, sinful against God in this whole area, and he still proposed to you and said, I, I want to commit my love to you. Will you respond? Like he loved us in spite of our sin. That should permeate this culture so that it doesn't matter who walks in these doors and wants to start finding out about who this God is, that we don't shun anybody, we don't push anybody out because of what they've done or maybe what they believe or they don't, do, they don't agree with all this. Like this needs to be a place of grace that wherever anybody is or that if there is a marriage that's struggling or there's a single person who's struggling uh, in any way, this is a safe place to come and struggle because we're just all strugglers that have been forgiven and loved and received by the grace of God. And so that's, that's, my, that's my, how do we respond as a church? Grace and, and truth. So let me pray for us as we wrap up. Jesus, my prayer has been, there are so many topics we talked about today uh, that could sidetrack or that could inflame uh, or could have hurt, but my, my prayer has been what would come through loud and clear this morning is your amazing love for us that you, Jesus, now say to every one of us here, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. So whether somebody who's married this morning is hearing that, somebody who's single, somebody who's hurting in some way, just what may come through loud and clear today, Jesus, is that marriage is such a big deal through the Bible because marriage points us to you and that you lay down your life for us. You died for us while we were sinners. You offer us uh, an eternal love relationship with you that nothing can break. And that in that relationship, we will find satisfaction. We will find our identity. We will find our hope. And so I pray that we are a church that understands that and that lives it out. A people living full of grace and truth. In your great name we pray. Amen.